Ron Dring's podcast in the house. You got Ron Rapitalo here, your host. And I'm chopping it up with my buddy and former colleague, Delvin Burton. And what's really funny is that we worked together for a number of years at a national education nonprofit called New Leaders and hadn't talked literally for years until this episode. Now, you follow people on social media, you see how folks are doing. And when I let people know that I was doing this podcast and was finally making it happen, Delvin dropped me a Facebook message and said, Ron, I would love to be a guest. And I could say no, because I just have the utmost respect for Delvin. So you're here a little bit about his story through the lens of the impact his father had on him and how that his father being a coach Delvin's always been an incredible coach of people, coach of creating systems. So listen up, Delvin's got some dope stuff to say to y'all. What's up, Ron Dering's universe? Ron Rapitalo is back on the mic and I have a good buddy and former colleague of many, many years from a decade ago the wonderful Delvin Burton. Delvin, I'm really excited to chop it up with you and to, to catch up here on Ronderings. Welcome. Appreciate that, Ron. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, before we even get started, hey, man, just shout out to you uh, for even starting this particular endeavor. It is great to uh, see you bring Ronderings to the to the masses. You know, I've, I've enjoyed them over time and can remember back uh, very early on in our interaction with each other where you would you would drop knowledge so it's 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 a it's, i think it's a wonderful opportunity for you again to bring that to the to the universe as it is thank you delvin as they like to say in commercials and in life timing is everything so indeed timing was just right in 2023 so delvin this started off just like i do with every guest what is your story what do you want to tell the rondering's audience my story, I think, um, and it was interesting, I was thinking about this earlier today, because of course, you you know, you kind of have different iterations of your story for different audiences. But I think for me in the space that I'm in right now, I, I, I often tell people that my story really, really starts with my parents and specifically my dad. And I was thinking about mm-hmm. in, in this space of what he taught me, things that he did, the things that he said to me and, and how that actually has helped me evolve what my why has ultimately been. Um, and why to do why I do the things that I do, right? Like we're always trying to figure that particular piece out as sort of part of our story. It's like where did these things, certain attributes and actions come from? And and for me, I think again, it's it's my dad. Uh, and just really briefly to describe him, my dad was an electrical technician. He's retired now. He okay. was an electrical technician. That was his career. That by any stretch was not who he was as an individual, right? You know, when okay. I I think about my dad, my dad was a a leader in the community. His day nine to five job was probably how very few people knew him or even knew that's what he did. They really knew him Mm -hmm. as coach because he spent so much time like pouring his talent, his time and his treasure into the kids in the neighborhood through all of these various youth youth sports programs, whether it was football, baseball, basketball. Like we were always at some facility doing something. I say we, not only me and my brother and my uncle, but like. All the kids on the block, my dad had that truck that everybody jumped in the back of when it was time to go to the YMCA, you know, well before seatbelts. I'm like, man, we we used to pile 10 deep in the back of this truck (laughs) (laughs) and and drive down the street. But it was like, 
parents would send their kids out and they're like, oh yeah, you're going with Coach Burton. That's cool. You know, we'll see you later on this evening. But the reason why that's that's so important to my particular story is because for me, it became later in life when I looked at why I went into education, why so much of my time was also spent around working with students and working with children and working with other individuals who were working with children. I was like, well, this is a no brainer. This is what I saw growing up. Like this was just, this was uh-huh. natural for me. So that's, that's sort of where my, my story really begins because whether it was high school, whether it was college, I, I was always working in service of other people. Right. Uh-huh. And that's, that's really, you know, I tell people my, my why is to be in lead and service to others in order for them to be the best version of themselves. Very, you know, kind of straightforward. Like I know no other way to live in terms of moving beyond. Like I never worry about myself. I'm going to be okay if we can be okay. And by we being okay and me working to help impact others in a positive light, I have this belief that it one will come back around to me, and that if I'm a part of the community that these individuals are in, then ultimately, like I said, I, I'll be okay in the end as well. Whether it's the community as a whole, or you know, when it comes to you know fiscal means and financially and all that kind of stuff as well. But the the other thing that was really key in terms of what my father really said as a, a as a role model for me, and I mentioned this earlier in terms of of what he said. And this was, you know, we talk a lot about growth mindset and thinking about our time together early in our careers. Mm-hmm. Growth mindset yeah. was a major piece, right? You know, and and I think my dad and my mom uh, were exposed to that before it was really called growth mindset. <laughs> uh, because in my house, what did they call it back then? Well, in, in my house, like, well, and you know, my parents sold; they hustled Amway, right? Um, and ah, and it, okay. it had a whole like mindset piece around it, like a lot of those types of endeavors did but my like thinking you know think big the whole notion of like positive thinking and the one thing that really stands out to me and it was always something that I still to this day hold on hold on to and I t- often tell my son and others who are in my space is you know life is about lessons not losses right and we often think about the things that we lose and and the, the mistakes and the errors that we made. My dad had always cultured those into being like just things that help us get better. Like you you use those to actually examine what's the lesson from it so that you don't repeat it. And ultimately, you're better as an individual or community when you don't repeat those particular lessons. And I was just like, man, you know, and again, thinking back around growth mindset and all, I'm like, he started this really early. And, you know, and, and kind of laid that foundation just around what my mindset should be. And then I think the last part was just the things that he exposed me to. The mentality that he had as, you know, we grew up in Texas, I uh, grew up in Houston in a pretty fairly middle class, majority black neighborhood. Doesn't mean that we were absolved from dealing with sort of the, the challenges of being, you know, African-Americans that were growing up in a city that was for the most part pretty Southern. But my dad was really great about not only him providing a role model for leadership, but putting people in my space that also would be able to do that. So the coaches that I had very early on in life, people who he connected with and, you know, made sure I stayed in their particular space, all of those individuals, you know, and I think back just how important they were because they really set the foundation around me seeing myself as a leader and being okay with that and being able to call myself that without thinking about it as being arrogant or pompous, but like, I I just knew no other way. Like (laughs) it was the activities that I did, the 
the different uh, venues in which I was able to operate, it was like, you know, in some way, shape, form or fashion, I was either elevated to a leadership position by virtue of what I brought to the table or just them giving me a chance to exercise myself as a leader and recognizing that it would be a place for me to practice. So whether it was the football field and being named captains of little league teams and captain of Mm -hmm. my high school team or going into service-based organizations and, you know, just thinking I'm going to be a participant and pretty soon it's like, oh, you have some ideas. We need somebody to lead this particular endeavor. You know, hey, Delvin, Mm -hmm. you want to do this? Sure. Black Students Association in college. I just look back at all of these opportunities that I had to really practice and hone my leadership. And it wasn't something that I automatically sought of, went into an organization and said, this is what I have to do. But I practiced the orientation that I learned from my father, which is if you move into a space and you are in service, you know, people will recognize that and they'll make the decision about whether or not they want to follow you. And I've just been fortunate enough to have that really be, you know, what's happened for me. Just a real quick, and I'll give you a quick example, Ron, because I think this is probably the most powerful example. And sometimes I tell it the story within the context of job interviews and just I think it's a it's indicative of of sort of my ethos and and the result that can happen when you approach situations with with uh, you're consistent and you're operating in your why, even at an early age, right? Again, that notion yeah. of to be and lead and service to others. Wash you, I applied for a scholarship, John B. Irvin scholarship. Um, at that particular point in time, it was only offered to 10 um, African-American students across the country. I found really the school by accident, and it was a sort of a last-minute applicant. I'm like, I'm going to try. It looks like a great school. I like what I had heard in terms of talking to alums and whatnot. So I pursued this particular scholarship opportunity. It's time for me to visit campus for the scholarship interview weekend. And I was delayed a day by weather. Houston weather was crazy at that time of the year. And so I'm already like playing this mind game with myself and like, this is not going, I'm not going to get this scholarship. Like all these other applicants are there when they're supposed to be there. They're having this opportunity to introduce themselves and impress people. And so next day I fly out, go to St. Louis, get there on campus. And I go to the Black Students uh, Association. They had a room on campus and that's where we were meeting. and the other groups of students had already went out on a campus tour. And so I walk into this room and there are these two older African-American women and they're trying to set up chairs and moving tables. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I said, um, you know, introduce myself. They were like, oh, you know, we heard about your situation. You know, everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. I said, well, you know, I appreciate it. I said, but what are you all doing? And they, well, oh, we're trying to set up this room. I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you all take a seat and just tell me where you want things? And I'll set up the room for you. I can finish this off. And they were like, well, no, you don't have to do that. And I literally was like in a sweater. I had these nice slacks on and, you know, I had yeah. a tank top on underneath. I took the sweater top off and I went to work, right? Be mm-hmm. in lead in service to others, right? And ended up getting a scholarship. And I asked the lady, you know, of course you go, I matriculate the campus. And they literally said, the day we met you and the first impression that you made on us, we knew already that one of the scholarships was yours. And I was just like, wait, you got to be kidding. They were like, it didn't matter what your, you know, we knew academically you were fine because you wouldn't have been invited. But the question becomes in that scholarship weekend is like, what type of individuals are the people who 
you know, they are have identified for this particular. You said you, said you showed us right then and there exactly what you were about mm-hmm. and who you were. It's like who walks into a room and is like, no, sit down, let me do the work. And that was pretty much my ethos the whole way through college. You know, not to say that mm-hmm. old people had to sit down all the time, but it was about doing the work. Like, how could I be? Yeah and lead and service of others. So that's, you know, that's my why. And I think everything in my life, I really tried to go back to that particular place, you know, whether it's been my time at, at New Leaders, my time as a school leader, even in the endeavors that I do now with regards to my entrepreneurism, it's really all around, like, again, how can I be and create a platform for being in service to others and helping people, again, be the best version of themselves, whether it's physically, whether it's mentally, yeah, so that's 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 sort of where I am. Hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> I mean, we can base the entire rondering on just letting folks like you riff on your story. You're such a a storyteller, Delvin. And one of the stories you you, you read my mind and wanted to hear a story, not only about yourself around how you've led how you are and lead in service to others. But I'd love to hear a story about your dad. How, what, what story comes to mind when you think about to be and lead in service to others about your dad? This is the story I want the audience to hear. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Um, a great question. Gosh, and there are so many. I, I think the, the, <laughs> the biggest one that stands out, and this is, um, you know, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, this is my dad of laughing because if my dad heard yeah. me tell this story, um, you know, so it's, it's one of those where often when you are the, the head coach or, and my dad was the head coach of my little league football team. So, you know, there's always this, uh, this mindset that, oh, a coach will, you know, favor their kid and, you know, do certain things for their kids. Um, yeah. You know, their kid will be the, the quarterback and the running back and that kind of thing, right? So what was interesting about my dad was he was just like, son, I don't need a quarterback. I don't need a running back. He's like, there are more guys on the team that are way more talented than you, right? Sobering message to receive as a wow. as an eight or nine-year-old kid who was hoping that he would be able to handle the ball. He's like, but you know what? He's like, you are extremely bright. You know, and and we need, but we need you, but we need you in a different way. And I was like, oh, okay. He was like, I need you to be the center. And I'm like, huh? He was like, I need you to be the center. And he's he's told me. I said, well, but he's like, you are thinking about the glory of these other positions. He's like, nothing can happen without the center. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, if that ball never gets hiked. Nothing. If the exchange between the center and the quarterback is poor, nothing ever happens. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? Like, this is a bunch of, you know, you, as a nine, eight, nine-year-old kid, you're just like, man, this is, he's just knowing me. And he started showing me, and we would watch football games, right? He was like, look at, look at the center. Pay attention to the center and the quarterback, right? And, you know, show me how... Even during the offseason and whatnot, like the the quarterbacks and the running backs celebrate the linemen and talk about how they could do nothing without the linemen. And he's like, you know, son, it's not, it's not about the glory. He was like, but if you can do this, he was like, it will put us in a different position as a team and we will go into every game being just that much stronger because I know I can count on where the ball starts and then the other individuals that will be able to touch that particular ball. And 
man run. I tell mm. you what, I probably in the little league, you had to start an all-star team and whatnot. I was uh-huh. the best damn center in our entire like football league. Like every <laughs> everybody knew and I could I mean, as an eight or nine year old, I'm like telling people blocking schemes and blocking assignments and really becoming a student of the game from the line standpoint. Yeah. Yes. And that I mean, it helped me later on in life. Like, I, again, I was never football is one of those interesting things. I was never the most talented player on the on the field uh, from a athletic or physical attribute standpoint. But I would tell people there was nobody who knew the game better than I did. And, you know, ended up on varsity as a sophomore. Again, other people who had wow. better physical attributes, but they would not work me in the weight room. And they definitely did, wouldn't study the game the way that I studied the game. And and again, I attribute that to the lesson that my father, you know, taught me. And And not only was it important for me to know my position, but it was important for me to know what other people would need to do because, and he told me, he's like, well, Delvin, what if they don't know what to do? And, you know, eight or nine, I'm like, well, that's their problem. He was like, no, it's our problem. He was like, because if they don't know what to do, great, you know. But if you know that you can help them, again, to be and lead in service to others. Like, that message, man, started so early on. It has been the thread. I, I mean, even in our relationship now, you know, I listen to him talking. I'm, you know, and I often will say, I'll, he'll tell me something, and I just make that statement to be and lead in service to others. He's like, yeah, that's, that's the way we do. Like we know no other way. If, if I could say there is a burden way, like for us, that is the burden way we lead, mm. you know, we be, and we lead in service to other people, you know, with the understanding that if we can make the world a better place and help people be better in this world, everybody will be better for it. Not only what they give to the world, but we ultimately get back in the exchange in that particular relationship. So yeah, that, that story of, of it was rough, man, when I was a kid, Ron, because I was like, who in the hell wants to be the <laughs> he was ready to be, You was ready to be the star. Yeah, back, I was like, <laughs> my dad's the coach. I'm supposed to be in the back. It don't matter if I'm good or not. He the coach. He's supposed to make right. sure that I had these opportunities. You always hear those stories like, oh, you know, even yeah. Jalen Hurt, you know, his dad was a, 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 a high school football coach. His dad was his high school football. You always hear about the, you know, those stories. And I'm just like, yeah, my dad was a football coach and I was the center. <laughs> That was that was the glory in that particular moment. But I tell you what, I wouldn't have exchanged the lessons from that for anything in the world. You know, not only did it humble me, but it just gave me a, a whole new perspective very early on in life of of what it meant to play certain roles and not all roles had to be the role that was out in front. But that didn't mean that that particular role wasn't important. That's such a powerful lesson, right? Because when you talk, when you introduce your father in the space, right, that his nine to five job is not what people knew him as. He was coach, Coach Burton, coaching in all kinds of youth sports, right? And that for you as a son to tell you, I know your strengths, and this is going to be the way that you lead in service to others, Delvin, and you 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 took it, right? And let's be clear, I don't know if our audience understands football. I don't want to make that assumption, but the center is not the role that people often watch football and understand. Like I as someone who's watched a hell of a lot of football, they didn't ever really play play touch football, but that's very different than tackle, to be clear. Right. And seeing someone like Travis Kelsey yep. from the Eagles and his key role. In that offense, everyone looks at Jalen Hurts. Folks are looking at their great wide receivers. I'm like, 
no, he's the anchor of that offense. Like you just like, I think when you watch enough sports and you understand the positions yeah. that oftentimes it's not the person who is scoring that's making everything happen. Like I'm watching and I need to rewatch because I don't think I fully watched enough of it in detail. The Bill Russell documentary on Netflix. Yeah. If you want to talk about leading to being and leading in service to others and having more rings than, than fingers, yeah. that is Bill Russell. Yeah. Very similar to you though. Like the story of he knew where every player had to be on the court yeah. and also all the, where the defense was supposed yeah. to be. Right. And there was this interesting story after he passed of Kobe coming to him. This is Kobe post Shaq yeah. trying to win the next fourth and fifth chip. And what he basically told him was like, read my book. I already talked about this. Like if you're going to become that next level, you have to be able to be in lead and service to others. I don't think he exactly said it like that, but I think that was what he said. And you have to understand your position, but also other people's positions and how to really maximize individual strengths. So that, that's such a testament to like that kind of lesson because everyone wants the glory, but the glory doesn't no. come in the ways that like will maximize you, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, then and then also maximize the collective, right? Especially right. in team sports and team sports. And it's, it's sobering now to watch, you know, some team sports. And, you know, I love my beloved Houston Rockets. And but it's it's something that's sort of become attached to them where they had these guys who don't necessarily understand that particular concept yet. They're great individual players, but they don't understand yet what it means to really put the collective and the team and the needs of the team first you know, to go after that particular championship and understanding that in that your individual accolades will come. People will talk about you and rave about your contribution to the team in that particular vein. But if you can't get past what you want and recognize that that may not necessarily be what will help the group be successful, it's sort of all for naught. And you just, you know, you sit in this particular space. And, and I've been fortunate to be a part of teams where, you know, that particular ethos has served, served me well and working with my you know, my fellow teammates and whatnot and, and being, again, elevated to leadership positions very early on where it's like yeah. the things that you do and the decisions that you make, people start to recognize like that guy right there, he's unselfish. He's about team. And if we need yeah. a leader, it's got to be somebody who's about the team and not just the best player. Uh, the best player doesn't necessarily always have a team mentality. Um, and it could be super talented, but you need to make sure that that person who, especially again in team sports, and I think in general, I mean, you, that I think that particular way of thinking uh, transcends sports and in different realms and whatnot. You need somebody who can who can think about the bigger picture, who can think about individuals well beyond themselves, so that ultimately things are successful or there's a better chance for the organizational organism to have success because of a person having that particular mentality. And again, not necessarily being me focused, but we focused. Yeah. So Dalvin, I want to take some of that energy and leadership in sports and go into how I met you, which was working at the educational nonprofit. We worked that together, new leaders, right? Yeah. And so not only were you someone that had worked in schools, but you were in a role at new leaders where you were supporting schools and leadership teams and leaders. And so tell us a little bit about how those lessons translated from what you learned as that center in Little League football yeah. 
And fast forward, we're going to jump ahead to like your time at New Leaders. How many years did you spend at New Leaders? I know you were there a minute. I was at New Leaders for 15 years. Woo. Yeah, 15 years and, and, and lots of different roles. It was interesting because one of our colleagues who I helped hire uh, is now one of the executive team members. But at one particular point, like, she was my boss. <laughs> it's just like, this just feels really strange in terms of our relationship. Like, you're reporting to me. It's just like, and I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for you in the interview and deciding that, you know, you all should move forward with hiring me. I was like, yeah, that's that's all besides the point now. Like, again, yeah. everybody has a role in the organization or organism at a particular point in time. And I was like, mine is a lot different now than what yours should be. And, you know, you are the best fit for at this particular point. So it's, it was cool to see people, you know, evolve over time and to see an organization that was not only committed to developing, from my perspective, developing leaders, you know, exterior to the organization in terms of the work that we did, for schools, but also giving people opportunities within the organization to grow in their particular leadership and evolve and find pathways for people that not only would challenge them, but would also give them the best opportunity to be able to have a positive impact on what the organization was ultimately trying to do. It was really cool, one, to have met you there, but two, to be a part of an organization that was so mission focused and mission aligned with where I was at that particular point in my life and where I have, I have been and, and still really remain, remain committed to to kids and, and making sure that all kids have the opportunity to be able to succeed at high levels. Like that's just that's, that particular statement and knowing that everything that we did from an organization standpoint was like in pursuit of trying to make sure that we provided that uh-huh. was something that was just, I, I mean, still to this day is just very powerful to be a part of. And even in my, the other th- endeavors that I have, I I try to, what are those two or three things that I can really make sure that my employees and the people who I work with can really kind of hang on to as what we're ultimately trying to do and what we're about. And, you know, that was one of the things that was to me very clear at New Leader. So I I always thankful for my time there because it really helped me see, you know, the clarity of a a mission and a vision and what that could ultimately mean for a culture. So I've tried to move and take that lesson forward. But the time at New Leaders, my gosh. And I, I remember getting there as a, you know, and I don't even know if you knew this, Ron, but I originally was supposed to be an applicant. I was supposed to be, you know, a new I, leader. You think I remember yeah. that? Yeah, that's right. And um, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, Ron Augustine. Ron was the recruiter for New York, New Jersey, and they had in just started City. the yeah. program in Newark. And, uh, you know, I remember having a conversation with him. He's like, yeah, I think you, you know, should really try to, you know, go through the application process. And, you know, I said, well, what, what happens if I don't get this? And he's just like, well, you know, he's like, I guess you continue to move on with whatever you were doing outside of this. And I'm like, mm, I, I, I need something a little bit more secure than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not work for me, right? And I was like, well, you know, uh, you know placements and all that kind of stuff was still trying to, you know, be a figured out and then you didn't really have control over that. But I do remember him saying, you know what? I get it. He's like, but I think you, uh, you know, in terms of being a really, you know, qualified individual, somebody who's committed to education, committed to the a very much a mission and vision aligned with new leaders. He's like, I think you should try to come work for us. And I was just like, oh, that's different. And mm. I ended up applying for a particular role as a, uh, what was I? I was a senior senior director, no, senior manager of resident learning uh, was the first right. job and role that I had. Our foundations team. Yep, I was part right. of the foundations team and having the opportunity to go and spend time at 
you know, the different foundation events and again, to really be and lead in service of others and always looking at systems and operations and processes and like, how can we get better, you know, from that particular standpoint? And uh, I remember Darlene, you know, was there at the time and Darlene was like, you have a really interesting way of working with people. And she was just like, you're quiet and you kind of operate in the background. She was like, but every time I started talking to people and asking them questions, she's like, your name kept coming up. <laughs> I was like, well, I hope in a good way. She was like, yeah, in a very good way. She's just like, well, mm. maybe we have him in the wrong position. And I was like, you know, and she had come to me about doing some other work with the team and expanding, you know, my viewpoint, really changing and, and evolving the role in a much different way. And I'm mm. thankful for to, to an organization that, again, being a leader in service of others, I was I was just being me, Ron. Like I was doing what Delvin normally does in any situation. Right. And it wasn't like there were, you know, roles or positions that I was trying to seek out or say, oh, I need that role or that. It was people who saw something in terms of the way that I was operating and doing things and decided that that would be a contribution and value to the organization overall. And, you know, to have, to start off in more of an operations role, but then to be able to evolve that into helping develop the Emerging Leaders Program to help with, you know, recruitment and admissions work, just all the different things that I had an opportunity to have my hand in um, at that particular point. Again, and I, I say that's all in a testament to people seeing and not pigeonholing me, which, you know, as an African-American male can really happen in education really quickly. You are only good at this or we only see you yeah. being able to do this. And new leaders didn't do that. New leaders let me really be my full authentic self and gave me opportunities to really expand, you know, my leadership and my presence and my impact within the organization, you know, and ultimately it allowed me to be able to help other school leaders, you know, have just as much impact, you know, in, in the work that they do today. So very proud of that work. And, you know, I introduce myself sometimes and say, I, I, I'm i blessed to have worked in an organization that indirectly allowed me to, to impact over 10,000 kids. Like it's people who work in, in wow. schools and whatnot that could never say uh-huh. that. And it, it was still one of the reasons that I never went back to the classroom or to doing work at the school-based site specifically, because I had really saw what it is I had the ability to be able to do beyond just the the walls of a school building, but for, again, systems and opportunities or uh, systems and situations that be able to, to, you know, allow me to impact that at a much greater level. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just thought of this, right? I didn't know, Delvin, your story about your dad having you play center in Little League football. I knew you had a football background, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie this because this is the way my mind works, <laughs> right? I remember when you were Mike Moore's chief of staff. Yep. And thinking about the role of you playing center in Little League football and that role, you were the center of our team, Delvin. Yeah. Like I remember all the things I would come to you for in my recruitment and admissions role. You're the person who knew everyone's playbook and can get help things unstuck. And you were the person who took vision and knew how to implement it. You were the person at our retreats that made sure the retreats ran smoothly. And we had many retreats. Remember the (laughs) LLBT? Yes. I was like, we love to retreat. Yes, we did. (laughs) We love to meet. Hot damn. Yes, we were meeting all the time. (laughs) Plenty of practice with meeting facilitation, always. But you have this incredible skill to be able to run the offense and not need to be the one, though everyone would speak your praises, to be seen as like, well, 
Elvis is the quarterback, but everyone knew that you knew the playbook and to come to you for everything. And so talk to us a little bit about that new leaders, particularly that role of like, you're the center of the offense. Like what, how are you thinking? How are you navigating? Where were you at that time in terms of your own leadership development? Yeah. I think in my own leadership development, I just, I really saw everything as an opportunity, right? Um, and again, it, and it was interesting because having the opportunity to work for certain leaders and Mike was one of those, I mean, still just, you can make mistakes, you can make errors. You know, he didn't want you to repeat them, of course. Like, so there was yeah, an opportunity to right. really process those lessons and whatnot. You know, if something didn't work, it's okay. It didn't work. What did you learn from it? Right. And so to have somebody that you are essentially as your boss or supervisor who has that particular mentality and gives you the space to be able to make errors, make mistakes, grow, learn from them, because that's what the organization was about, right? Like the people who were in schools and the people who we were training were going to do those very things. And it would be those lessons that we needed them to be able to rebound from and be able to, okay, here's what I will now do as a result of that particular you know, strategy or, or execution not working the way that they ultimately wanted it to work. But, you know, I, I think it was one, it's funny because I, you know, again, coming from a school-based role where it was very much sort of the same thing and I was doing in the morning, could go in into a classroom and have to do an observation. And at lunchtime, I'm like doing lunch duty. And at night, I'm setting up for an event with the custodians, right? Because mm -hmm. I recognize like, not because I, I was like, oh, you could easily delegate to the custodian. But at this particular school, the best relationship you could have is if you got in with the custodian and did work, he would do whatever you needed him to do. And you didn't have to do it all the time, but you couldn't be that person who just say, oh, yeah, I need you to do this. Oh, yeah, I need you to do that. Jump in a little bit and, and recognize what his sort of That's style right. was. You could get whatever you wanted. For, he would bend over backwards for kids because you modeled bending over backwards and helping him sometimes. And so that, that notion of how you want, you know, treating people the way that you ultimately want them to treat others was something that, that was, you know, I think honed to me early on. But again, had the, the opportunity to really exercise that and practice that in new leaders. But it was just the opportunity, man, to really operate in in spaces and have somebody say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. When people articulated a need. You know, we were small but mighty back then. We didn't. You couldn't just go create a role. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. you, you're like, okay, we need additional help reading applications. It's like, well, I know how to read an application. I know the process. How many you need me to do, right? And then who else can we train to be able to get in on this particular process and expand it so that members from other teams are making a contribution as opposed to saying, you know, oh, yeah, recruitment and admissions is holding up my, the next level of work. No, but what are we doing to help that team? You know, if they're in a need or in a bind so that we ultimately, again, going back to that place, we all ultimately get what we want. The line starts there. We don't have program participants if recruitment and admissions doesn't have what they need to be able to get people into the programs and make sure that we have the best folks coming in. And then, you know, what happens the rest of the way? So just really being, I think, process oriented, which is something that, you know, I have the ability to be able to do is sort of not only be involved in the situation, but also stand back a little bit and see how the how a particular system or, or structure is working. And, you know, when possible, can we improve it this way? Can we do this? Can we make this particular adjustment to be able to make sure that, again, things run smoothly by the end of it? But it, it was, I mean, literally, I still go back to that same place, Ron. 
to be and lead in service to others. Like that's what it was about. And even in the opportunity to, you know, identify new people to come into the team and, and into the organization that will be on our team, it was something I always still look for. Like, is this person, yes, not only are they mission aligned, but sort of what's their ethos when it comes to work? Is this that, you know, oh, I can only do this here and, you know, nine to five, oh, bye, see y'all later, because we just were not that type of organization. We didn't kill people in terms of like overworking them, but that was just sort of a mentality that you had around like we do what it, we did what was necessary to get it done because we were all so focused on the magnitude of the work and the impact that it will ultimately have and the importance of what we were doing, which, you know, when you can get everybody on the team who is behind that and, and willing to, you know, put forth the next extra energy and, you know, genuinely for the most part, if people get along with each other and enjoy being around each other, like it was, it, that, that place is still, I mean, it, it has such a special place in my heart, bringing me relationships like the one we have. And there's so many other individuals who I still stay connected to. New Leaders was actually the longest place to date that I've been employed and had ever been employed. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to re- like even realize, like, wait, did all that work at school very early on in my career. But here was yeah. this educational nonprofit that I, I was so attached to and so committed to for, you know, a significant portion of my professional career. We have 22 collective years of experience working at New Leaders. Yeah. And I think very similar to you, Delvin, it is the one place. And look, where, where I am, here's the asterisk. Where I work at Agility Consulting, I have a lot of love for Agility and I'm still there. It's four and a half years, going to be five. It's probably going to be a longer time after that. But the strongest foundation of my professional work experience to date has been that seven years at New Leaders. And I think similar to you, it was the people. I always remembered the people. And I can have a litany of people that I can like spin off and not just folks on staff, mm-hmm. right? But it was the new leaders themselves. Yeah. I mean, I don't have my leadership network and the beginning of my executive search practice, Delvin, without what I learned at new leaders, both people and process, yeah. right? Like that, I new leaders is always going to be a place that I am eternally grateful for. This term in Tagalog that is used called Utnang Naloob, which is loosely translated as gratitude. Literal translation is debt of the heart, oh. right? Yeah. I have a huge debt of the heart for new leaders. So I'm going to ask you to do something. And I know there's a lot of people you probably could shout out. Who's one person in your time at new leaders, whether staff, a participant, someone who came to foundations, like particularly impacted you? And tell a little bit about that story. Oh, gosh, man, really? I know. It's like... <laughs> I know you didn't think this would be a Barbara Walters interview, Ooh. right? But yeah, this kind of, this is, you know, this is how Ron goes. <laughs> Man, one, one, oof. Hmm. Gosh, there's so many people who I, I would say, and this is interesting because he he probably wouldn't even know that I watched him as closely as I did. Hmm. But for me, it would be, it would be Mark Etienne. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Mark Etienne. That's yes. someone who needs yes. to be on Ronderings. I just saw him in Baltimore when I was there for retreat for work in October. So Mark Etienne, I'm going to have to, because I don't think you're really on LinkedIn or Facebook all that much. I'm going to have to send you this, the Dell yeah. and I shout yeah. you out. And, and so. Mark, I mean, he was a guy who had been a new leader and mm-hmm. in terms of understanding what he did as a school leader, 
and then recognizing, bringing again his talents and treasures back into the organization, right? And then watching his leadership as a coach at one point and then moving from coach to being executive director and working with the city and leading not only the city, but New York, that in terms of like, you know, the flagship and and just the way in which he, uh, I I mean, you know, as as a a African-American male to see other African-American male leaders and my wife often it messes with me because she's like, you can be so critical sometime of other black men. And I was like, and it's not because, you know, I, I have a major issue with other black male leaders. I said, I think sometimes for me, we can easily get by on our maleness and the fact of, of what we look like and what people, you know, the assumption that we can handle kids and we can handle certain situations. But Mark was one of those people who yeah. not only could, I mean, Mark was charismatic, no, not was, is, I mean, he's charismatic, but you're talking about knowledgeable and skillful yeah. and just watching him work a room. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. One of the most proud moments was when Mark and I got to facilitate, like co-facilitate a meeting together and literally like, People came up to us after it was over with, and I think we were down in, um, I think it was North Carolina, it was out North Carolina, so I can't remember the city, but both black, white, like people came up to us and it was like, this is the first time that I've ever been in a room that was facilitated by two, where learning was facilitated at a professional level by two black men at the level that we were able to do it at. And like, told Ron, I was like, I don't know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? He was like, it's a good thing. He was like, we will hope that we could have more of us, you know, being in front of a, a group like this and leading the learning the way that we've been able to do. But still to this day, that is like one, any opportunity I had to be able to facilitate and co-facilitate with him was just like, not only a pleasure from being able to watch us, how we could play off of each other, but just the fact that mm-hmm. the power that we brought to learning in the room, just from a knowledge level, and then also to be able to execute at a skill level without it just being that, oh, they're males. They can they can make things happen for kids in a school because of what they look like. And it was like, no, we can make things happen in school because of what we know and what we do. And not just because of our, mm-hmm. you know, physical attributes and whatnot. So yeah, that Mark Etienne by by far is is one of those people who still when I, I look every time I see his picture on on Facebook or LinkedIn, like I, I just my heart warms because of, of you know what the role model that he was for me, kind of the permission and power that he even at you know the level I was at at that particular point allow you always need those individuals who continue to inspire you. And let you know what's possible. And, and you know, when that notion of sort of self-doubt and imposter syndrome starts to creep in, it's like, no, 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 no. There are people who look like me who can do this. And I know I can do this. And Mark was one of those who I always looked at as like, he can do this. He does this. Like, there's no reason why I can't do the same thing and do it just as good and at a standard of excellence that he set for himself. And that was what I always was impressed by with Mark. Like, he never stepped into a room unprepared. Like, it was always like, let's go, let's do this. And we're going to do this at a high level because we have to represent not only for who we are, but for who those individuals are going to be working with. And uh, that was black and brown kids, which was important to us. So, yeah. Mark Etienne, for sure. Yeah. It sounds like knowing, so Mark left Baltimore City Public Schools. He was there for a while, Belvin. And when I chopped it up with him, he was on the cusp of about two um, 
to leave city schools, and now he's like you. He is solopreneuring it. Yatsu should chop it up and catch up. I mean, it makes me realize I got to catch up with him and see how he's doing, but I know, surprise, surprise, in our world of new leaders, you land at two places yeah. if you stay in the sector. You either go to Unbound Ed right. or you're at Rethink. Yep. So he's a partner at Rethink. Not a surprise, <laughs> you know, because he and Kate go way back and he's done stuff for Kate. So Yatsu should catch it up. I think y'all would have a lot a yeah, lot yeah no it will be especially given you know some of my pursuits and whatnot now where still taking the and it's interesting yeah. because i you know in terms of what you had talked about about being sort of at the center of a lot of things within new leaders but also being behind the scenes because some work that i do for an organization that's near and dear to me now my wife started a, a, a professional society for women of color who work in the pharmaceutical industry and you know okay. i would spend a lot of time she would often ask me these questions about you know i'm trying to do I want to do this seminar or this workshop and finally evolved from like doing seminar and workshops to where we, she really wanted to develop full scale, like leadership development programs for them. And um, so that's, oh, wow. that's some of the work that I've been doing here recently, but even in that vein where I could easily stand in front of a group, whether it's virtually or in person. And I've done a few times where I've, you know, facilitated conversations and facilitated learning for the ladies of this organization in person. But, with one of the programs that I just put together, it was like really important for me to make sure that I was not the center focus of it. So I actually, my my role within the program is yes, I'm behind the scenes helping develop the program, but from a, a execution standpoint, you know, I, I helped produce one of the, the webinars with another lady <laughs> where she's doing the yeah. actual facilitation and I'm just really supporting her in that particular space. And you know, my wife laughs because she's like, you will play whatever role you ultimately need to play. And you know, I told her I wanted to be the support person because I wanted to see the learning take place. And there's another person who works with another facilitator. And I told her this was a way for me to do it mm -hmm. without having to like observe or come in as an observer, but to actually be a part of the learning process for these ladies so that I could see it from both perspectives. Like, what is it that the facilitators need? And then what is it that the learners need? Because I wanted to make sure that we, you know, account for both of those facets of the program development and any iterations or improvements that we make going down the road. And she's like, see, that's why you do this work. She's like, for you to be able to have an insight and know, like, if I'm going to embed myself, let me embed myself at this level so that I could ultimately see what happens on both ends, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to just sit back and I'll, I'll go to do an observation of this group and an observation of that group. And I'll do a focus group of this group. And, you know, yes, that is a way to be able to get information, but there's nothing like seeing the learning firsthand and hearing what people have to say about the experience. And yeah. then, oh, can we improve upon that? Oh. Are they actually getting what we wanted them to get? And again, still goes back to my time in New Leaders and, and just the ways in which we operated yeah. and developed programs with that constant attitude and like, how can we make sure that we do this the right way and how can we make it better? And what are those like proof points and those those pieces of information that we can use to make sure that we're making you know appropriate decisions when we go into this continuous improvement piece. She's my wife messes with me all the time. She's like, nothing is ever settled with you. It just can't be like what it is. I'm like, no, there's always space to to get better. And if we can get better, that means that the people who we serve ultimately get better too. So it's been it's it's always um these types of conversations where, you know, you can get easily get caught into constantly doing and doing and doing and not take a step back sometimes and be like, well, why do I do what I do? And then how does this actually play out not only in the yeah. past, but in what I do currently? 
I got some other work that I'm working on with one of my studios. And you know, I was feeling a little down today before this conversation because yeah. I'm in a in a trepidation mm. point with one of them. And I'm just like, ugh. And this this conversation helped me realize, like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, this is this is this is it's just a trial. It may be uh, this is just a, a a bump in the road. Like this too can be overcome, and I have everything I need either in terms of my leadership capacity or with the people who are part of that particular team and having faith in them. And it's just a matter of you know what do I need to ultimately put in in, in place so that we uh can continue to grow and develop on that front. But I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, you naturally started going into, it's really funny as I think about the arc of how these episodes naturally go in some natural timeline. So you started talking about what you're doing today, right? A little bit of what you're doing to support your your wife's nonprofit, to support women of color in the pharmaceutical industry and doing some leadership development. Thing that I've known you've done for a minute from just following you on Facebook is that you are a cycle bar franchise yeah. owner. So let me elevate that with you for a little bit. Like, how did you get into that? How is that going? What what lessons have you taken from being the center of the Little League football team, working in school, school leader, all those things you've done at New Leaders? Cycle yeah. bar franchise owner? Not a lot of people necessarily connect that, but I bet you have a really good connective tissue story about how um, you started doing that. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a, a connective tissue story. It, it was something that my wife and I, uh, we were trying to figure out. We wanted to be able to move and get to a space where at least one of us were working on behalf of like ourselves or when I say ourselves, like us as a couple and doing something a little different. It was funny because we mm. went to our accountant one time and he was like, you all have to get rid of a W-2. Like, this is craziness. Like, you guys are going to be paying the government like big money if y'all keep this up at this particular rate. And he's like, find something to do that you like really enjoy and can maybe develop your own business around. And he knew me very well. He was like, something tells me that, you know, give Delvin a project or whatnot and he'll run, <laughs> he'll run with it. I was just like, you say that so flippant. He was like, am I telling the truth? I was like, ah, yeah, partially. Um, so, <laughs> um, it knows game, right? That's all it is. We went, but we went on a cruise and again, we very much, involved in our own physical health and well-being. We go on this cruise and on the cruise they had indoor cycling. Now, you know, I have bad knees, can't do the treadmill and do all the running and whatnot that I've tried to do at one particular point. Ron, I tell you what, we were on that ship and we took that class and it was it was transformative for me. You talk about like Oh wow. And when I say transformative, I one, it had been a long time since I got like that level of just joy from exercise since like football. And even with football, it was about like the competition mm. and the camaraderie. And this particular space, it was a little bit of the same. It was like the competition and the camaraderie, like being in this room, having an instructor, the music, and I love music. And and like being able to all these things that came okay. into play. And like we left that room and I told my wife, I was like, I am such a physical like high right now. And like, I want to go back and I want more of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we have to be able to help people feel the same way that we just felt. And she was like, well, and I told her, I said, I'm sure there are other things that allow people to do it. I'm like, but I really like indoor cycling. Like, I think anybody can do it. I think it's one of those where regardless of sort of like your age, like you can wrap your head around it. And, and just, again, music is a big thing for me. And I'm just like, 
as a person who thinks in another life he was a DJ. Um, <laughs> it it, okay. it was just like playlists and all of that kind of stuff and like hearing the music and the beat drops and the motions and everything that goes along with that was just like, oh my gosh. Um, I'm, I was in cl- I was at studio this morning and again, the same thing, uh, watching it in class and watching people, mm. you know, grab onto that is just something that for me is is inspiring. So we, at that particular point in time, there were two big players in the market. Both of them were corporate owned, but there was this little known franchise that had started that was slowly becoming sort of the pinnacle when it came to like indoor cycling. And that was Cycle Bar. And we were able to get in pretty early on. We were like one of the first 50 franchisees. Our studio in New Jersey was, I think, like 100 or 105 to open, you know, nationally and internationally. And then I was also a little bit down the road, able to pick up a studio in North Carolina. A little bit challenged with that one because I literally got it right before the pandemic. And the the pandemic mm-hmm. was what it was for both of my studios. It was interesting because I, you know, had to close them down for five months. And you talk about pivoting, run like bikes went to people's homes. We did online instruction, leveraged Facebook, leveraged Instagram, and created little groups that wow. essentially people people's membership then went to pay for them having a bike at home and also being able to take uh, these classes online. And wow. um, you know, as soon as we were able to get back into being in person. I ran classes outdoors. I literally took my whole operation and moved it to the parking lot. We would take bikes in and out. And we we did that for like six months. And that was in both studios, both locations. And my bet is, Delvin, most franchise owners, like from what I watched when COVID hit, they were deer in headlights. They're like, well, what do we do? The idea of even doing things that sound intuitively obvious for you would be considered innovative to do. Right. So I just wanted to shout that out because I think what you did was just like, Ron, I was playing the center That's just it, like man. I was in Little League football. You just improvise and, and you just, you got to just call some audibles here. Came so naturally to you. My bet is you ended up being elevated in the world of Cycle Bar because I bet other Cycle cycle Bar franchise owners yeah. didn't pivot like yeah, you did. No, it did. All right? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually ended out. up being, being asked to like join the franchise advisory committee, not because I was like one of the top franchisees because I buy forward and I was just trying to get my, you know, keep my studios going. But again, it was the one thing that people knew about me was the ability to be able to share. And what I didn't mention was when we first got into the franchise, there was very little information, like information flow. You know, people were kind of all operating their own little silos. And I very early on had started visiting a bunch of studios and was just like, nobody's talking to each other. This doesn't make sense. Like, we're going to all make the same mistakes and we're going to, we're, we're missing opportunities to learn from each other. And so Charlotte was like, well, do something about it. I was like, I'm going to take that challenge. And I pulled together groups of owners and facilitated a few conversations. <laughs> of course like, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting on calls with guys who like, are you about to open? Yeah. You know, what did you learn? Oh, I've learned this and that. Hey, would you be willing to share that with other franchisees? So I kind of unofficially was creating opportunities for franchisees to come together. And it was not, you know, our franchise was like, that's not our job. And I was like, that's fine. We got telephones, we got email, we can make this happen. And, um, you know, I was able to do that very early on. And then that, again, eventually rolled into me when um, we had a new corporate owner come in, Exponential Fitness. The guy who was the 
president of Cycle Bar at that point, he was like, you know, I've heard a lot again that whole note. He's like, every time I talk to people, they keep bringing up your name. And he's like, you know, I look at the list and I'm like, well, his franchisees aren't necessarily at the top of the list. And they were like, yeah, they may not be, but like Delvin knows like he can tell you the people to talk to and just in terms of being able to put people together or just in terms of like ideas that had spurned other people that I didn't even know about. Like we'd had conversation. I was like, yeah, you know, X, Y, and Z. And people would take some of that information and knowledge that I was sharing or just ideas that I had and they were taking it and running with it. And they're like, oh, you know, on one call you talked about this and I was able to do X, Y, and Z. And so, yeah, it, it was, I had an opportunity to kind of get not necessarily elevated the leadership. Well, yeah, it was a leadership, unofficial leadership role within like the franchise community and often still get calls from people and people are like, hey, somebody refer- started an online group for franchisees. We got a Facebook group that I started that since corporate has since kind of duplicated mm-hmm. that and have a version. But people often come to me and they're like, you know, people have told me like, you're the person to like talk to. Like, I want to get in that group. And can we talk a little bit just about the history of, <laughs> of Cycle Bar and what your journey has been? You know, and I open definitely am willing to share with individuals and whatnot. I've learned a lot of lessons just about as a person who didn't have a business degree and, you know, my background in business was what I had kind of learned from my parents and operating different businesses and whatnot with them. I didn't even share some of those stories and lessons about mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the little uh, projects that my dad, I think, ultimately were projects, but things that sort of wet our entrepreneurial okay. appetite. Yeah, it today, things are better. I'm, I'm evolving and getting them back on track is often what I said. It was, you know, to still be around after the pandemic, one, is a testament in itself because there were a lot of my colleagues who either couldn't continue to operate or just sort of bowed out of the mm-hmm. business. But for me, it's still, both studios continue to be a passion for me. I, you know, when I do get a little overwhelmed sometimes by the operational aspect of both of them, I tell you, Ron, all you got to do is visit the studio. Mm-hmm. And when you see the impact that it's having on the lives of people, whether it's physically yeah. or you hear, you know, what people are able to offer mentally about what it is that our particular studios provide to them and then how they describe the studios, which for me is really like as an owner, it's a, you know, I try to set the culture and make sure that we then are able to execute in a way that's in alignment with that culture. And when people can articulate like this is such a community and this is such like I've been to a lot of places, but this place is different. And I'm like, was well, it different? Good. And like, it's different. Great. Like, I love coming to this place um, and this is what it does for me. Like, those are the things that really, again, to be in lead and service to others in order for them to be the best version of themselves. That That's a that's a major piece for me. And I, I'm I'm proud to be able to have, you know, two businesses that allow me to be able to really kind of pursue and align with my why in in a little bit of a different way, while at the same time also being able to like give pieces of myself and a significant piece of myself to, you know, my other consultant company, Be Inspired LLC, which does work for organizations like Women of Color and Pharma and and some other groups to really, again, help provide those learning opportunities and leadership development opportunities that allow people to be the best version of themselves, but in a different environment, right? In the corporate environment, which is great. So, yeah. Well, Delvin, we could probably stay another seven hours together. We're a little over the hour point. And we end every rondering episode with this question. Delvin, what's your rondering? What's the lesson or the story you want to share with the audience before we give the deuces? Um, 
I will I will go back to something that I said earlier and and you know what I would we live in a world where it is easy for us to get down on ourselves to look at you know the the blows mm-hmm. and the the punches that life deals out and to approach that from a very kind of I kind of often call it the woe is me or the losses aspect right and it is really and, and my hope mm-hmm. for people would be in those particular moments to not necessarily get caught up in what you lost, uh, but in what did you actually learn? What is the lesson so that you ultimately become a better version of yourself? And the next time you're faced with that adversity or any other, you have that particular experience to lean on, but you can go into that particular experience with a different mindset, knowing that you ultimately can walk out on the opposite end of that with the success, with the win, and not necessarily, you know, have that loss repeat itself. So, you know, how can we really take those losses and things that happen to us and really look at what is the lesson, what is the learning that allows us to be, again, better versions of ourselves in the end, not only for us, but for our community and the world as a whole. I think if 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 we globally took that kind of mentality, like the world would be such a different place, such a different place in terms of just just people working to be better um, and to create better environments for for not only people currently but the generations to come so that will be that will be it for me ron nothing too earth shattering yeah <laughs> well, but you know um sometimes to shatter the earth it takes lots of little nicks right and there's something delving about your message your story that's really inspiring because i think sometimes when we think about what it takes to be able to do what you've done, what I've done, what other ronderings, you know, guests have done, right? We're not extraordinary people, even though I think we might be put on some kind of pedestal. I do really think that that mindset that we talked about before we got on and hit the record button, right? Lessons, not losses, to be and lead in service to others. You, you, You model that so well. So I'm, not only really grateful, but just deeply humbled that I, I know Delvin Burton. So thank you for being a part of Ronda. Well, brother. thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. And thank you for allowing me to just I, I really run over the, the course of our many years of knowing each other, you know, whether it's been from afar or it's been yeah. through conversations like this. You know, our relationship has meant the world to me. You know, you've always been one of those people who, in terms of the insight and just watching you and what you've been able to do for other people, you continue to inspire me. One of the reasons I reached out to you and really wanted to be a part of this, I'm just like, Ron, if, if you know, just, hey, man, who who would turn down an opportunity to be able to partner with somebody like yourself? And you are always a person who's pursuing impact. And, you know, again, that notion of how can you do and make the world uh, a better place. And, uh, you know, I think Ronderings is a, a, a great platform for being able to do that. And um, this is going to blow up, my friend. Like, uh, I'm going I'm to see this this everywhere. I'll be like, you know, this Ronderings guy, this Ron guy. But like, yeah, yeah, I know Ron. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, we'll see where it goes. We'll let the universe and God determine that. But Ronderings audience, Thank you, Delvin Burton, for being a guest today. And peace out, y'all. Thank you, wow. There seems to be a theme here in these Ronderings episodes, and Delvin is no different about 
folks looking at challenges and failure as opportunities to learn. You heard that from my first episode with Jonathan Santos Silva talking about, you know, failures, this incredible opportunity to learn and hearing Delvin say lessons, not losses. Something I imagine he learned being in youth sports when he was that center for his little league football team that his dad coached to being now an entrepreneur of two cycle bar businesses. That mindset carries you a long way and when you have opportunities to practice that mindset in different endeavors, that's what Delvin dropped, y'all. I'm sure y'all enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed it. And looking forward to more ronderings. Peace.